What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 56 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Rizzotto, and today we are joined by a very, very special guest. She is a senior staff writer and columnist for The Athletic, covering a lot of sports down there in Los Angeles, covering the Dodgers, occasionally the Angels. Uh, she's really good. It's Molly Knight. Molly is joining the show. Molly, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I know we worked uh, we worked really hard to get this in. Uh, so I want to start by saying 2021, fans are back in the ballpark. What is kind of your early impressions of how this season is going from, you know, kind of a fan standpoint and seeing faces yeah. in the stands again after a year of just looking at these hideous, not hideous, but I mean, people look nice in cardboard, but cardboard cutouts aren't fun. Uh, so we get to see actual human beings. So what's that like seeing here uh, in the early weeks? I mean, it's so much better. I Last year was tricky. I was I was fortunate enough as a member of the media to be able to go to some games, unlike Sam. So there were some Dodger games I would go to, and there would only be 30 people in attendance. And even their family members couldn't go. So it was hard. I felt weird uh, and, and guilty complaining about it because, it really wasn't fun at all. It was super weird to be in the stadium with no fans. Uh, you're, you're a writer, you're sitting there typing away, you're writing your game story, or you're writing some feature. And then all of a sudden, um, some guys rounding the base, three bases are touching home, and you're wondering what happened. He hit the ball over the fence, but nobody cheered. It's like the whole tree falling in the forest and no one's there to see it kind of thing or hear it. Like, that's what it was. It was weird. Um, I think the players were a little bit lost. I think he saw certain guys um, like Javi Baez and even Kenley Jansen. I mean, guys who are who rely on that that pop from the crowd to really to really get going. I think it was really hard for them. Um, you know, and again, no one wanted to hear them complain. You're getting paid millions of dollars to pay, play a children's game um, when so many people were out of work. So I, I think guys were reluctant to complain, but it was it, it didn't mean that it wasn't true. Um, and fans being back, even even ten thousand as we've seen at, at Dodger Stadium and, and Petco and, and some of the other NL West teams um, where the restrictions are a bit tighter than they are, say, in Texas, where everybody's allowed. Even 10,000, it's just awesome. Um, I think I think those, those 10,000 people who are there are so excited to be there that it seems like they're, they're making the noise of a 40,000-strong crowd because they're so, they're so amped up. Um, it's never really um, new what we were missing until until it's gone. I think that's a life lesson that, that repeats itself over and over again for a lot of us, but I don't think baseball fans take it for granted again. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, you know, it, it, it does sound like 40,000 people every night. I mean, it, they do sound yeah. amped up and, I feel like they, you know, Dodger fans would be amped up every single game they play the Padres because, you know, of course we see that the Padres made some moves this offseason. Um, they bring in a few guys, high-profile guys. The Dodgers bring in a few high-profile guys. Is this a rivalry? And and we don't, you know, there, there's so many people in the media that are trying to figure out the definition of rivalry. Um, and I feel like we don't exactly know. Is it historical-based? Is it, you know, what what's kind of going on for the team at that moment. So is this, and this is a very loaded question, Molly. So good luck. Yeah. Uh, is this a rivalry? <laughs> well, I'll take this step further and say that I, 
I don't know that we can even consider the Dodgers like the evil empire yet. They've only won one title. I mean, yes, they've dominated the NL West. They've won the NL West eight years in a row. They've got a lot of money. I mean, other teams have, have, a, have that much money, too. The Yankees have that much money. The Mets now have that much money. Other teams are spending money as well. But, I mean, it gets to the point where you're like what the Yankees did in, in the late 90s and the early aughts, where they were just the big, bad Yankees. They were a dynasty, and it was like, they're the bad guys. You know, when they come to town, everybody keys up. Everybody wants to take down, you know, Goliath or the Beanies or whatever. Um, I, with respect to the Dodgers, what they've done, I don't think they're there yet until they win another one. So, um, yes, they are the reigning champions um, in baseball. They are... They are like what the Atlanta Braves were in the 90s, where they were really good in their division, and they won one. Okay, let's see if they can win two. Let's see if they can win, uh, you know, three out of four. Then then it's like, okay. Then, but then basically everybody turns into your rival because everybody, their whole season, and I talked to some former Yankee players um, who were on those 90s teams before the season started. I talked to Tino Martinez and, and David Cohen about what that was like going out. Um, you know, in April and May, and they said, you know, these teams are these teams are getting up to through the Yankees. They're 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 playing their World Series against you in, in May, um, and they said that, that actually helps them. I mean, there's a lot of talk about this these World Series hangovers because we haven't had a, a World Series champion repeat in 20, 20 years. The Yankees did it um, in '99, uh, 2000, uh, and, and I think part of it is just a lot of these teams have gotten gotten mountaintop and it's exhausting and then they just kind of they kind of let down their guard a little bit the Yankees never did that these Dodgers never did it and I will say um you know Padres fans might not want to hear this but I think that um it is a I think it is a rivalry I, I think because you have two really good teams playing really hard in April I mean it's awesome I think that the Dodgers are lucky that another team in the NL West is this good because it's the first time in their eight years they've had a team this good in the division while they've been at the top. And I think it will be crucial uh, to be tested by a team this good during the regular season if they do want to go back-to-back. I think that will be a huge component of it. If, if in the end, they do go back-to-back, I think the Padres pushing them will have, you know, in April, May, not letting them rest on their laurels, not letting them skate. I think that will be a huge part of it. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I, I loved the energy the Padres brought. I, I thought this was, this was the first series of the uh, of the season between those two. I thought it was like a little overhyped, you know. Us in the media were dying for any kind of storylines. We want something. Um, I thought it was a little overhyped going in. And then watching those teams play, it was, it was like it's underhyped. I mean, they were just, both teams just refusing to lose. It's almost like, it kind of reminds me of like Little Brother and the Padres kind of growing up, you know, and, and maybe Big Brother's been kicking his ass all these years. And Little Brother's finally at a point where, hey, maybe he can stick Big Brother's ass. And Big Brother's like, like didn't really see the rivalry before, but now Big Brother's getting mad that Little Brother's almost there, and, and, it, and it fires him up a little bit. Like, he's not going to let him win the wrestling match with foot race or whatever it was. Um, so I, I think it's awesome. I, I've, I've, the talent is one thing, um, but it's been the intensity that these two teams have played with. I think that's where the rivalry comes from. And yeah, the Padres haven't won anything. Um, the Dodgers have only won one recently. It's not the Yankees and the 
Red Sox going head to head in the you know in the 2000s when they're when they're both have had a bunch of recent titles uh, and they have such a bitter long-standing rivalry. Uh, but I think it's fun. I think it's awesome. I'm I'm here for it. I'm 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 uh, I hope these guys can stay healthy. I hope Bellinger and Tatis Jr. can stay healthy and this can continue to be an amazing uh, rivalry this year. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. And I think if there's any team that could repeat like the those late 90 Yankees teams did, I think it's this year's Dodgers. I think they're that good. Um, and speaking of that good, you mentioned they did win a championship last year and they only have that one. Yeah. But what was, yeah. what was you know, some of the takeaways of covering that 2020 Dodger team? It was so bizarre. I know we mentioned the pandemic kind of derailed things and the postseason was kind of held at a neutral ballpark. But what was it like yeah. covering those guys, covering that team um, during a pandemic? I'm sure there's a lot of interesting anecdotes to go along with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think something that's been undercovered is just um, how weird and isolating it was, especially for the younger guys. Um, you know, if you're historically when Dodgers, when the Dodgers bring up like their rookie players, they kind of all like live in a house together in the Valley somewhere, you know, like they're kind of like playing Xbox, whatever they're playing Fortnite and they're ordering like wing stop. And they're just being like 22 year old, 24 year old dudes. Like, and that's kind of, you know, cause they're away from home and, and maybe they have girlfriends, maybe they don't, but they're not married yet. That's kind of like their whole thing. This last year, it was like, it was just super weird. They really couldn't hang out. Um, they were all pretty isolated, and I, I just think that that really took its toll. Um, I think they were he- actually helped by the fact, uh, well, in some ways, I mean, Clayton Kershaw told me that he felt like the fact that they were actually all in a bubble together with their families for a month, they had a weird situation where they were like the number one seed in, that, in the NL, so they were just in Dallas for a month. They didn't have to move um, during the playoffs, and the like that kind of created a family atmosphere and it made it feel a little less weird. I think that that was like helpful that there wasn't all that travel. But then he also said to me, you know, that Ellen, his wife would say, so would say it was not exactly a dream scenario having three small children, you know, under the age of five in a hotel room for a month, you know, like that, that was a bit of a nightmare um, scenario. So it's just things like that that we that we really didn't. God help us, won't ever happen again. Um, I think I think Mookie Betts uh, was the difference. I, I I don't think the Dodgers win that World Series without him. I think the Braves were very good and they were right there um, with them. And, and the Dodgers were down three games to one and, and really didn't look like. Uh, they had that much of a chance to beat a really good Braves team three games in a row, but they really showed their mettle by not giving up. And they won all, all three of those games late, you know, with big home runs for different people. So um, it's definitely a weird feeling not to have a, not to have a parade or any of that. But um, looking back, um, you know, they still had to, they had to win more elimination games than any team. They had to win. They had to win, uh, you know, an extra an extra playoff round, which they did handily over the Brewers. That's still pretty terrifying. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I think there's an asterisk next to the next to the championship, but I don't think that that means that it's easier by any by any stretch than a normal one. Um, but yeah, I know they'd like to go win win it this year during a normal regular season, and 
I, I know they're motivated to do that. And they didn't have the three month um, victory lap. You know, they weren't out partying, getting drunk, going on Saturday Night Live, and, and you know, partying. They weren't doing all that. So I, I don't think there's any any kind of hangover at all. Um, I think that they have that advantage as well going into this year. Yeah, no doubt, and I think that's the motivation of you know, wanting, wanting more. And I think that will play into it. You mentioned Mookie Betts and another guy that came in, uh, came out of that Boston deal was David Price. And even though he opted out last year, I feel like he uh, has had some sort of impact, you know, this off season last year, uh, this season, you know, he's, he's taken that bullpen role with open arms. Hey, anything I could do, they gave him a ring. He donated it to the Players Alliance. I mean, this is a stand-up guy. I know even last year, I think he uh, even gave some money, uh, even gave some uh, money to the Dodgers minor league players because they weren't going to get paid. Yeah. So this is, an, yeah. a, this is a really, really under... Because a lot of people don't think about this. You know, they, they look right. at Mookie Betts and the numbers he put up, and, and rightfully so. But David Price is really kind of an unsung hero in invisible hero, I guess, to this Dodgers team for a lot of people. So what is kind of his impact early on? And I guess even a year in, it is still early on in his tenure. Yeah, you know, I think that that's right. That's a smart observation. I think anytime you have a veteran player with his kind of resume, I mean, he's got, you know, a Cy Young, he's a World Series champion. I I, I forget if he was a World Series MVP, if it was Steve Pierce, he should have been. I mean, he, you know, he's got everything there is, all, all of that, pitching, you know, big market, small market, every, everything you could ask for this, for this guy. He won't be coached. Like, the fact that he's that flexible, it absolutely sets a tone uh, with the team. It's a young team, to be honest with you. And it's a team that relies on a lot of uh, flexibility and versatility, you know, guys playing you know, different positions every night. They, they were able to let go of Kike Hernandez, um, who was such a valuable contributor, Swiss Army, a human Swiss Army knife, because they believed in, in uh, Zach McKinstry. They believed that he could he could bounce around and play different positions. They believe Edwin Rios has some flexibility. They believe in guys like Luke Rayleigh, um, you know, because they've had some injuries. You know, they've, they've Bellinger broke his leg on a freak play. Betts has had a, had kind of a back injury. Chris Taylor's had kind of a has has been dealing with a back injury. Gavin Lux has had some kind of an injury. I mean, it, there have been some some late lineup scratches and changes and, and movements. And I think this team might be undefeated if everyone had been healthy all the time, especially Bellinger, but and, and Betts all the time. But um, you know, I think it kind of it, it it sends the message from the top. Um, when, when a guy like David Price is willing to pitch out of the bullpen, it sends the message of like, you know what, just, just do whatever you can to help the team. Like, it's easy as that sounds. If he's willing to do it, then some 22-year-old guy is less likely to be like, well, I don't know, I'm more comfortable in second. Or my, my, my market is really second base. I shouldn't also be having to, you know, play in, in left field and right field and blah, blah, blah. Like, you'd be surprised. Some, some guys come up with that kind of attitude um, and whenever their agent's telling them about their, their you know, their their value at certain spots. Um, so I think they preach that these guys, if they are, if they, the, the opposite of conventional wisdom, 
um, which is like get good at a position or you know become a starter or whatever. I think they preach that if you if you show your versatility, you'll get paid more. I mean, look at KK Hernandez. Um, and with Price, you know, I think um, I think there will be. I think he will make starts. I think somebody's going to get hurt at some point. I mean, Gonsolin, um, unfortunately, has been has been hurt uh, dealing with something, and, and so right now, Price would be the sixth man, uh, you know, the next guy up. So he'll get some starts in there, but. But, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's something you actually give me something to think about. Um, yeah, he's leading by example, which is a lot better than, than all, all talk and no action. Yeah, it's super important, I think, for a veteran guy like that to know where he is in his career and to know yeah. – his role. So I think, you know, hats off to David Price in that regard. Uh, and from one decorated Southpaw to another, Clayton Kershaw was the story for me last postseason. Finally getting his ring. I mean, we, yeah, I'm in San Francisco. So, you know, we, I, we here heard it all the time, you know, Bumgarner versus Kershaw. It's always going to be Bumgarner. But Kershaw, you know, it might, he might not have the postseason success. Uh, overall that Bumgarner has had, but he's got a ring. And I think that means something to him. And I don't think the Bumgarner comparison means anything to him, to be completely honest. But this is huge for Clayton Kershaw and uh, just a stand-up guy. And I know you've covered him for a while. Uh, what yeah. do you think it was like for him to get a ring? His family was there. Uh, you touched on that a little bit. I mean, but it was just awesome to see Clayton Kershaw finally get that ring. It was kind of the last thing on the checklist, to be honest. Yeah, and I think, you know, for those of us who've known him, been around him since um, he came up when he was, you know, 19, 20 in big league camp, you don't really, I mean, when you're around the sport, you're covering the athletes, there are very, very few who you um, develop, like, a personal affinity towards. Like, someone who you would say, like, somebody has the line, I forget, Dan Harris, who said something like, I would let Clayton date my wife, you know, <laughs> like, like there's very few, I mean, he stands the character, but, um, it was very, very few people who like, yeah, like I would trust Clayton Kershaw with personal information about me, you know, or I would, I would let him like babysit my kid or I would, you know, what, whatever, like there's, there's only a handful of guys like that. But you would like say, I'd invite this person to a barbecue. I'd actually want to know this person off the field. Um, and that's the way I, I feel about Clayton. I, I, just, I just feel that he's a good person. I feel like he treats people with respect. And he just works so hard. And any of us, for him, it was just this tragedy. So many of us can relate to, I think. Um, when, we, when, we, when we try and we want something so bad, and for whatever reason, it just it, it eludes our grasp. And anybody who's ever had that happen to them knows how devastating it is and how hard. I just... Like, you know, I think I just think anybody can relate to it, whatever, whatever it is, you know, that job you almost got that, that, um, I don't know, that, that girl that got away or the, the stupid mistake you made. I don't know what, whatever, everyone has something like that in their past, right? For me, it might've been that I was, I wanted to be a doctor, but I, and I, and I have a degree in biology from Stanford, but I just, my brain could not grasp organic chemistry and I would just there and like bang my head against the blackboard like not really but figuratively and I just I just felt like I want this so bad but I can't do it and um you know it just it was devastating for a while um I ultimately realized that I you know had other passions that I could have just as much of, of just as good of a life in a different field but we all have those moments right where we 
feel like we fall on our face. Um, nobody's perfect. No one's perfect at everything. Mookie Betts might be the closest person I can think of who's good at everything. But um, <laughs> like when you see it, and then and then we all have those private moments where we fail. But with Kershaw, it was just like it was on national television every year. It was like reliving someone's worst nightmare, but doing it again like Groundhog Day. I mean, it was just it was awful. Um, and part of it was, you know, him just not executing. And part of it was the Dodgers, they put too much on him a lot of those early years. They didn't have four starters. He was pitching on short rest, which Bum never had to do until that game seven of the World Series when he relieved. It was brilliant. And, you know, and just different things they were asking him to do that just were not normal, um, that nobody else was asking to do. And he would not, and he and I talked about this, he would not want anyone to make it believes that every time he took the ball, he felt like he, gave, he wanted to give the team a chance to win. He felt good enough. He was never going to bitch about how his body was going to fall was about to fall apart. Um, he just always wanted the ball. So, yeah, I think when he did finally did win it, I think it was just relief. Um, tears of relief. Uh, just a huge weight off his back. The same for his wife who went through it with him all those years. Um, and, and, and I think Dodgers, the Dodgers felt the same way, not just for him, but for themselves. You go to the, when you go to the playoffs all those years, you know, they felt bad that he that he blamed himself when it was it wasn't his fault. I mean, there were so many games with other people who screwed up, right? Like or didn't get that hit or the, the reliever blew it, you know, Jansen blew game two of the World Series in seventeen. Or, you know, the Astros cheating in seventeen. I mean, there were so many different things that happened. There's nothing to do with Kershaw failing, and, and I think it, it it was heartbreaking when he took it on. He took it so hard because he was, like, the main reason they were there in the first place. So I think it was just a healing moment, to be honest with you. And I think – I would think that, that now that it's mostly relief that this, this one was out of the way and they're, they're no longer cursed or anything like that, now it's like, all right, let's go out, let's kick some ass, let's win a World Series, let's have some fun doing it, you know. Not that winning that one wasn't fun, but I just think it's, it's going to be a little different this time. Yeah, no doubt. It was cool to see him celebrating the way he was and the smile on his face. Um, yeah. So I hate to go for, I hate to make this segue, but from Clayton Kershaw to Trevor Bauer, um, you've been, <laughs> you've been, you've been pretty critical. Uh, I know one yeah. of your articles was headlined is Bauer really worth the headache? So yeah. I present you this question. I'm sure you've asked yourself many times. Why did they make this move? Why did they make this move? They made the move because they felt like it was a good deal. I mean, it's crazy for me to say to you that, that uh, you know, giving somebody $40 million is a, is a good deal. But the way they see it is Bauer was willing to do this on short, um, you know, on, on a short deal, which is, which is good for them. Um, they didn't want to give, have to give him a, a $300 million contract. They felt like, all right, well, if, if he's not good, we're only on the hook for two years of this. Um, I think uh, they saw, yeah, they saw that unique opportunity. They tried to do the same thing with Bryce Harper. They tried to give him, um, you know, like some, some short short contract, but with a $40 million, you know, average annual value, um, which would have made him, you know, the highest paid player average annual value. But, you know, on a, on a, on a five-year deal or something like that. Um, Bryce wanted to, wanted to go to Philadelphia and, um, and take a shorter, a smaller, 
average annual value, but get the longer um, guarantee. And also, you don't want to have to deal with the free agency process again, which I totally understand. It sounds like a nightmare. Um, yeah, they, they, they felt like it was a good deal. And they also felt like, you know, they don't know how many more elite years Kershaw has in the tank. They knew that, and they were right about one thing, you know, you have to repeat, you have to get better. You can't just stay the same team and repeat. Everybody knows what you're doing. You have to get better. That's what every Yankee I talk to told me, and, and, and people around the Yankees are so scientists. You know, they, 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 they won um, they won in 96. They got, they, got, um, they got their asses kicked by the Indians in the first round in 97. They came back in 98, and then they just bulldozed everybody, won like, you know, 125 games including the postseason games that year. And they came back following spring training and they added Roger freaking Clement. You know, they added Chuck Knobloch. Like, they were they, they weren't messing around. They weren't like, uh, okay, we won two and three years. We're going to just roll with our – they had a really good core of group of guys, but they were like, no, we need to put our foot on the accelerator. The Dodgers are right to do that. Um, they saw what, what adding Betsy did. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that was really good. I think – I think there's a little bit of um, – I, I do think that they were a little bit uh, naive to think that that um, Bauer wasn't going to have some steps on, on social media or whatever. I mean, I think, like, calling uh, Ken Rosenthal fake news is not a road I would ever want to go down or a fake – we call it a, like a national gossip blogger or something. You know, like, that's not really – a road I would choose to go down, um, given that he's one of the, you know, most, the best and most respected people to do this. Um, so he's not going to change. He's going to continue to do his blog. He's going to continue to get into stupid fights with people online. If he shoves, if he's as good as he was last year, it won't matter. Um, I remember when Yasiel Puig was really, really good at baseball his first year, and he was a nightmare, you know, in the clubhouse and a nightmare and getting them on the field, getting them into all kinds of brawls, tear down, different antics he would pull. But they didn't really, the players didn't really care because he was so good. Um, as soon as he regressed to being like a replacement level pitcher, it got old real quick. So, yeah, if Bauer could be good, then I think it's, I think it's a good point regardless. Um, I had my, my issues with it. Um, I do think that athletes be held to part. Uh, um, my my opinion. Um, I I I had I have issues with some of the things you tweeted. I, I don't like the um, the bullying thing. It's weird for me. The the way that he kind of tends to have weird things with women online and it's weird for me. Um, but, you know, I'm a reporter and um, I said my piece when I signed this. If he, if something comes up, nothing new comes up, then I just want to write about, you know, his, his pitching um, and, and what he does on the field. You know, if he, if, if he does stuff new for the off field, I'll write about it. But, you know, um, I, I just, I'm kind of exhausted by his hope it's just, just his, just his pitching that I can write about. Yeah, and it was it was not too long ago that when Trevor Bauer was a free agent, I had um, 
former agent Josh Kusnick on the show to discuss that. And if anybody knows Josh Kusnick, he's very unfiltered and told me that Bauer would get big money solely because of his ability on the mound, not because of his marketing. Uh, and I think he ended up uh, being pretty spot on. So I, I'm, I've, yeah. I'm terrible with these segues, Molly. I'm telling you right now, I went from David or I went from Clayton Kershaw to Trevor Bauer. And now I'm going from Trevor Bauer to women in the baseball industry, which I really want to get your <laughs> thoughts on. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. It, well, you're fine. It, you're fine. Oh, what am I doing? No. So women in sports, it's, it's definitely a growing yeah. population and it's really great to see you're a female in the industry. What would you tell a young lady looking to get into, you know, this kind of atmosphere that is very severely filled with men? Um, I would say study every, read everything you can on Kim Ang, uh, who is the new general manager of the Marlins. I think if there had been, um, a female general manager when I was nine years old, eight years old, really starting to get into baseball and getting collecting baseball cards, organizing the guys by stats and positions and colors, doing all that. Um, I would have, you know, I didn't realize I was kind of playing fantasy baseball, like I would construct rosters. I didn't realize I, what I was doing, that there was actually a job, uh, a grown-up job for what I was doing. Um, I, I never knew, it never dawned on me that I could, that I could do that. And I think, um, you know, representation is just so important. Um, uh, you know, it was shocking to me also that she's the first, not only is she the first female general manager, but she's the first Asian American general manager. That was also shocking to me. Um, we, just, we just have to have uh, people in this role because they want to have the best candidate. Like, if you're a fan of, I don't know, uh, like a team that's doing terribly right now. The New York Yankees, let's say you're a fan of the New York Yankees and, and you think Brian Cashman is terrible. I think Cashman is great, by the way. But, you know, you want the, let's say you want the best possible GM to run your team. I mean, like, you want to be able to pull the entire population of people, right? You want the smartest, most qualified, best person in there. You don't want to just be pulling from, you know, only straight white guys. That's only a small segment of the population. It's just like it's just science numbers, right? Like, like you want to be able, to, you want the biggest pool possible to pull from. And yeah, I, I get it that you know maybe maybe men gravitate towards more towards sports just because they like it. it doesn't mean it's ever going to be 50 50 um, because people like what they like. You can't force you know someone to like something they don't like. But you can't. I mean, like. Like before Kim Ang, it was like you, there's there's no possible way you could convince me that of the you know uh, 120 or so general manager jobs in, in the four major men's professional team sports in North America that that there wasn't one woman who was more qualified than the other 100, 120 men, like not one. But that's 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 crazy, crazy. Um, so it might never be 50. One and one, it shouldn't be one and one nineteen either. You should have a representation in there. Um, so yes, yeah, so I would just say study her um, her career, and I would say you know don't limit yourself. I mean there there's different there are different jobs within the industry. Of course, you know you see women on TV, you see the sideline reporters. Shy, you see some, some of our coaches, which is cool. Like Becky Hammond was 
for Alyssa Naquin, Naquin with the um, um, Giants, uh, different, different, uh, I'm going to butcher a name, but different coaches with the uh, 49ers, and um, they're all over the place. That's great. So you can be an on-field person, you could be uh, a media person, you could be a writer on your talent, you could be an athletic trainer, you could work at the front office, you could be a lawyer for the team, you could be, uh, you could work in the analytics department, the baseball office, you could be a scout, you could be a team president, you could be in marketing. I mean, there are so many different jobs you can do. It doesn't just have to be I'm a cheerleader or I work in PR or whatever the traditional female job would be. Um, don't limit yourself. Look at your interests and say, oh, like, say you want to be a lawyer. Like, okay, yeah, I really like, you know, I really want to be a lawyer. I like these classes. Like, huh, it'd be fun to be a lawyer for the Dodgers. It'd be fun to be a lawyer for the Yankees or for the, or for the, you know, the Cardinals or, or the Toronto Raptors. Like, think that way. You know, men think that way. Don't limit yourself. Yep, Kim Ang and uh, Kim Ang is someone who has been overqualified for years and she definitely will not be uh, the last. Uh, and that is a great thing. Did you know Kim Ang from her time in LA? Cause I know I did. she did spend. Oh, so what, what were some of the, the yeah. interactions you've had with her? I will say too, with Kim Ang, um, and unfortunately it is advice I would give to any woman because it's just, it can just be crushing. Um, you know, starting to notice, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's like blatant, like sexual harassment or discrimination, or just being kind of like frozen out by your by your male colleagues or someone making a comment, or you know, because I've experienced it more, way more from male colleagues than from athletes. Um, people just, you know, assuming I got a scoop because I was flirting with a player, you know, or something like like that. Just, um, and it, 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 it sparks from like competitiveness or jealousy or whatever, or just boys club, like, you know, feeling like I don't fit in. Because um, I spend more time around um, other male writers than I do around the athletes themselves, especially during COVID. I mean, unfortunately, you have to develop a really thick skin. You have to kind of, um, it sucks, right? But you have to kind of like try to remain calm. Um, I've only cried at work once, but nobody saw me. I like what made it to my car. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, and, and Kim was always, she was always like the, the coolest person in every room. She was cool as a cucumber. She never got too high or too low. I'm sure on the inside, there were times she wanted to absolutely that some people who were like, you know, way less qualified to run stuff were being promoted around her. Um, uh, she was just, I mean, she, she never got fired too low, and she never, she didn't get involved in golfing. She didn't get involved in, um, in theatrics. When, I mean, and she was working in, like, okay, she worked under George Steinbrenner, and then she came to L.A. and was there under Frank Sport and all that craziness. I mean, she saw some shit, you know. There, like, she saw some real, like, legitimate, like, tabloid-level, like, stuff that would make People Magazine tabloid-level never got involved in any of it. She never gossiped about any of it. She just, she's just like a model employee. Like, I would hire her to run anything. And, like, Derek Jeter is a smart person. He did not hire her out of, like, some sort of, you know, affirmative action or, or, or sadness that women don't have, like, 
know, a chance. He hired her because she's the best candidate. Because that's who I would hire. She's so smart and she's so calm. And that's like what I would need. Um, you know, she was, I, I, I can't, anybody ask me about Tina Manasseh, I'll just go on and on because I can't speak highly enough of her. I mean, she, women, women get so much shit for being overly emotional. She was like the calmest, coolest person in that room while the men around her were absolutely throwing fits, getting into these like Game of Thrones type crazy, like backstabbing contests, getting emotional, throwing stuff, like literally throwing things like objects. She was just like, she was, I mean, she was the one, she was like Captain Sully Sullenberger, man. She's who you want to fly the plane at all times. So um, I wish I could be like him. I'm, I'm way more emotional, hard on my sleeve kind of gal. But, but yeah, if you could just channel your Kimming, she's such a badass, like, to do that, you know. I just, I can't say enough about her as a person, as a baseball mind. Um, and she still manages to have a personal life too. She's just like has a really great relationship with her husband. And I, I don't know. She's an inspiration to me. She's she she she's a god. That's great. And she she's probably yeah. someone that also came up, um, you know, setting lineups with her baseball cards. Um, yeah. So that's definitely pretty awesome. Real quick before we sign off here, I want to mention your book, and I read it. I think I've read it twice now. Uh, the oh best God. team money can buy, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse, um, being a published author and, and having this idea to cover the Dodger teams, uh, 2012, 2013, 14, what kind of gave you the idea to publish? And, uh, I guess what kind of gave you the idea to write, uh, something like this? Well, I grew up a fan and, uh, and then I got to start to cover the team kind of for ESPN. I was living in New York at the time, but I would always go see them in spring training and looking for ESPN in the magazine. And then when the Dodgers morphed, when the, when the report owners owned the team, it was this unique time, it was 2011, and it was this unique time when ESPN was kind of starting to launch LA um, and LA output uh, or out, outposts. They started doing SportsCenter out there. They started doing ESPN News out there. They launched some of the shows, some of the most popular shows that we like the jump with Rachel Nichols, they all run from out there, and um, at and, and uh, late night sports center. So um, they were trying to kind of establish a little bit of, of a presence in LA, and, and I said I would go out there and start reporting on the sport, which first everyone thought they would settle and it would, it would kind of be a non story, and then it went nuclear and to the point where MLB basically forced the sale of the team, which just doesn't really happen. They're, they're kind of like a country club of rich people, right? Like they own they, they own uh, their owners, but they're part of a club. But they're all they all kind of like watch out for each other, which is why the Wilfons were allowed to own the Mets like for a decade after the Bernie Madoff scandal ruined them financially. I mean, they just sort of like you know they had friends, they were liked, and they were protected, and it's just like okay, well, I guess we're just gonna let you keep the Mets, even though you guys have no money or or, or no willingness. Then, um, which hurts all of our bottom line, um, I guess, or, or maybe some of the owners didn't want the best to have a new owner to go out and spend a billion, billions of dollars. I don't know. But so then when the Dodgers went into bankruptcy, I was sort of, you know, I was going from the courthouse to the clubhouse every day, and players started asking me, uh, what's going on? Like, 
like, am I going to get paid? And, like, that's when you get the player's attention. Like, otherwise, I don't really care. As long as the check's clear. Once you start to threaten their livelihood, then they, then they, 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 their ears perk up. And it was like, for the first time, I sort of, normally a, a, a player-reporter relationship is a one-way thing. Like, I'm standing there hoping for crumbs from them. Um, it was like, for the first time, I had information that they wanted. So it was like, um, yeah, my agent doesn't know what's going on. Here's my number. Check me when you find out. Like, and we kind of developed relationships in the trenches that way. And then, um, you know, after they came out of it and got bought by Stephen Heinzer and Bob and Magic Johnson, I think that there was some real optimism that they were going to go from being laughing stock, uh, bankrupt last place to winning a World Series in one year. And it was actually a couple of players in spring training who said, you know, you should write a book about it. I think Money Bullets out and maybe maybe one of the top brands get to play them in the movie. I don't know. They said, you should write a book about us. And I thought, I've never written it longer than like 6,000 words. My book was 150,000 words. So there's no way. Uh, then I went around and asked some players how they felt. They're, like, they were either like super supportive or they just didn't care. They don't like, they were never going to read it. They didn't care. They didn't understand the difference between a book and an article or whatever. They, they, don't, they don't really think about the media. They think kind of think of us as all the same. So it's like whatever. Um, so yeah, so then I was um, writing a book with Grace because I was able to sort of like go around and get all the stuff and then what I know I do I was kind of publish it for a year or two. So um, you know, it was nice to be able to it's nerve wracking thinking someone was gonna find out, right? Like some scoop. But it was cool because like guys would tell me stuff and they trust me, you know, know that it wasn't they they're probably like they tell you something they know is not gonna be published the next day. It's not going to come out for a couple of years, but who cares, right? That play, that's the player they're bitching about. I might not even be on the TV tomorrow or whatever. So, um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how it came to happen. But you know, I, I never thought I was going to finish the book. Like I I wrote 500 words a day every day. My goal was just to finish it. So then, um, like I just I truly, uh, that was that was like my victory. And then when people bought it, I was like. Holy shit! Like I, I it was sort of surprising to me because my goal was actually finishing the book was what I was like most worried about doing. Um, sales was like you know way later off my radar, um, which was nice actually. I'll never have that again. Next time I'll just be obsessing about sales. That's how it all came to be. One of my favorite one of my favorite um, parts in the book is. Zach Granke. Zach Granke is one of my favorite people and um, the best, one of my favorite lines. It's something I always think of all the time. For some reason, like if I'm not thinking about anything, uh, this would be the thought that comes to my mind is when Granke told AJ Ellis that he would trade him because his value would never be higher. That is what I think about all the time. I don't know. What are some of your favorite Zach Granke stories? Oh, man. I mean, there are just so many. I mean, one time he walked up to me. He, he I don't know if he still does, but at, but at one point he had a uh, like a burner Twitter account. Um, so he was following people, and I don't even know if he was following me on the burner Twitter account. But he was he was looking around on Twitter. At one point he walked up to me and he goes, "Yeah, um, I I like or I thought what you tweeted the, the other day was smart." And I said, and by the way, Zach doesn't like walk up to people and talk to them really, like it's kind of unusual. So I turned to him, I said, 
what, 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 what did I say? You know, what tweet? He said, well, if I told you that, then you would know what I thought was the part. <laughs> um, so that was like a funny moment. Um, I remember like the beginning of the year, I told him I was writing a book and at some point I was going to want to sit down with him. Uh, and he kind of like looked at me and said, okay, you know, and then, um, and then he went out like that day. I guess I heard later he was like shagging baseballs with like surf and about like if I knew about baseball whatever and they were just like yeah dude like yes <laughs> they told me later and um, he was kind of like doing his due diligence or whatever and then um, I was still in all year like wondering when he was gonna like let me interview him and then one day completely out of nowhere like in September he just walks up to me and goes okay I'm ready now it had been like you know, six months of standing around and then it's like, whoa, shit, you know. And then we just, like, sat down and did the interview. And the interview itself, it wasn't even really that super revealing. I mean, it was revealing in that he actually, like, he just talked to me. Like, he talked to me and he talked to John Heyman for some reason. He likes John Heyman. Um, and, like, that's it. He doesn't really talk to reporters one-on-one. Um, and we just sat and talked about different stuff. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really even remember much about that interview. I, I mean, I put it all in the book, but um, but yeah, he. It was just funny how he described me that day. It's like, oh, we're we're doing this. Um, yeah, he'll say things to guys all the time, like his friends. Like he hurts people's feelings. Like he's so honest. The baseball players, they have feelings too, you know. Um, there have been like a couple of times where I've been like, someone's been in a bad mood because something backside to them they've had their feelings for that's been like like either you need to stop being friends with him or you need to accept how he is because he doesn't mean it he doesn't mean to hurt your feelings <laughs> but it's it i don't know i'm a sensitive person so i would be like it's hard to say if i would want to be friends with him because his stuff is like really harsh sometimes i i would definitely give him a turn over it so i don't know if i could handle it yeah but he's, he's so funny that you can't He's so funny that you can't not be friends with him. Like, I don't know. And he has really good taste in wine, too. So, like, and he's usually buying, right? So, I mean, I imagine. So, that'd be a good reason to be friends with him. I think he'll stay in baseball, too. I hope he does, just for, you know, more of these little stories, because he's yeah. great. Um, and he's yeah. a great baseball mind, too. I remember when he was... Uh, trying to find a place to go as a free agent and he would spend, you know, yeah. the free agents have the meetings with the front offices and he would stay and talk about their, you know, reports came out that he would stay and talk about their uh, front office, the way they build their teams. And he was just so intrigued that I wouldn't be shocked if he did go down that road for sure. Um, so yeah, again, the book, oh yeah, so go much, ahead. Yeah. Just to say, he, it's like, it's weird because he has so much money. He doesn't need a job, but a lot of these guys are finding out like these guys who were around when I was around, like, I mean, who, were, who aren't that much older than me. Like, you, when you when you retire when you're, like, 36, like, it feels awesome for the first year. And then it's, like, it's so disorienting. It's too young to not be doing anything. Um, but then you have all this money, so you don't have to work. So what do you do? So a lot of them, they just, that's why they come back. And they maybe they don't want to be, like, a coach and have to be in uniform and travel and their family 162 games but maybe they want to be like a pitching coordinator or a hitting coordinator or work in the front office or do something because you can't just sit around, right? Like I think Kershaw will just be heavily involved in this 
foundation. He will be actually doing a lot of the work that we be fulfilling. Like, so he'll, ha he'll have that. But you've got to have something. You're right. Zach will probably, like, work in a front office doing some kind of, like, a, a scouting analysis or something, you know, where he can kind of, like, not have to be dealing with a ton of people, but, like, I don't know, work with a couple of guys who you think they're smart and just, like, you know, help, I don't know, scout teenagers or something. Um, I'll be a pro scout. I can do that for sure. Yeah, and if, if I'm a big league general manager or president of baseball ops and I need someone to make a decision because the room is pretty torn, Zach Granke is going to be my guy to go to, uh, no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyways, the, the book is called The Best Team Money Can Buy. Um, Molly, I appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I can't wait to read your articles on The Athletic moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I could do this. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And don't crash your car, by the way, because I know you're. I won't. I won't. <laughs> I just drove by the uh, the James Dean Memorial Interchange, where he died. So, James Dean, we're thinking of you wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you guys can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly underscore Knight K N I J H T, uh, and you can find her work, of course, on the Athletic LA. Um, some good stuff there. Thank you guys for listening. You guys can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Um, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching and have a great, great rest of your day.